Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith. Thank you for joining me today as we study another chapter in the deliverance of God's people. The plagues of Egypt offer stirring lessons to us upon whom the ends of the world are come. The judgments of God are not to be brushed off or trifled with. And it should be an easy thing to see that persecution of God's people results in disaster sooner or later, because judgments are meted out primarily on those who make laws to bind the consciences of God's people and persecute them. But it is not seen that way. It is seen as punishment for wickedness, like the LGBTQ lifestyle or abortion or other evils. While those things are evil, and the Holy Spirit's protection is withdrawn from the nation and people, Satan then moves in and brings huge calamities, disaster, pestilence, and war. But rulers of state and church will misinterpret and misrepresent these as judgments of God and blame them on God's people and stiffen their necks and determine to continue their course. They will increase the persecution and intensify it in greater and greater defiance and arrogance when faced with calamity after calamity. This is the way they will justify themselves and will miss the truth of the matter. But before we go on, let me say thank you for your prayers and gifts. They mean so much. During this time of COVID restrictions, we can still offer the spiritual encouragement and deliver our CDs to you. Please pray that we can find ways to open up to more people the word of life. Also, our new online shop is up and running with a growing list of items, mostly sermons and CDs and DVDs and Keep the Faith for Kids programs. We also have a few books that you may want to know about. We are adding more items as time allows. Check it out. I would like to point out too that we have a few copies left of the DVD series that was done called Liberty of Conscience Threatened, which is a series of ten sermons by Pastor Stephen Bohr, Pastor Isaac Alachunji, and myself. You will find it most enlightening. This DVD set covers events and information that explains how the Trump administration fulfilled Bible prophecy and other end-time prophecies. This five-DVD set is packed with material that you can use. You can order it from Keep the Faith while supplies last. Plus, we have a special price for you. Call our office at 540 672 
3553. Just ask for the Liberty of Conscience DVD set. It's not expensive at all. Also, Last Generation Magazine is developing a new issue on the Mark of the Beast entitled The Mark. Many people wonder what the Mark of the Beast is and how much false information circulates about it. But you can't know what the mark is unless you first identify who the beast is. The last generation editorial team is collaborating with Pastor Steve Wolberg and other talented writers to carefully lay out from scripture who the beast is and who his accomplices are and what his mark entails. Teresa, the last generation sales and subscription manager, can help you with a variety of ways that you can use this magazine for witness, from zip code mailings to sponsoring subscriptions to buying packs or cases for distribution in your neighborhood or town. Contact the sales and subscription department at 540-672-5672 or visit their website at lastgen.net for more information. You can always count on Last Generation to give you great articles, attractive and relevant design, and great prices. As we begin our study, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for providing the much-needed scripture for our salvation with its instruction that can show us the way. Please be with us today as we study the first plague of Egypt and its lessons for us today. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who will enlighten us as we study and we pray for his assistance. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you can, to Revelation 14, 8 through 10. Listen as you read along. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The second and third angel's messages of Revelation 14 are a message that speaks about the fall of Babylon. Egypt was Babylon's predecessor in rebellion to God, and they are similar in principles and worship, but they are also similar in their persecution of all those who align with truth and righteousness. Here is a statement that links the plagues of Egypt with the seven last plagues on earth before Jesus comes. 
It is found in Great Controversy, page 627 and 628. When Christ ceases his intercession in the sanctuary, the unmingled wrath threatened against those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, Revelation 14, 9 and 10, will be poured out. The plagues upon Egypt, when God was about to, to deliver Israel, were similar to, in character to those more terrible and extensive judgments which are to fall upon the world just before the final deliverance of God's people. After Moses and Aaron's attempt to convince Pharaoh by the miracle of the snake, Pharaoh still unjustly rejected Moses' proposal to release Israel to go into the wilderness and worship. God now told Moses that he was going to bring a grievous plague upon Egypt. Exodus seven fourteen to 21 And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. go. Get thee to Pharaoh in the morning, lo, he goeth out unto the river, and thou shalt stand by the river's bank against thee come. And the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou make, take in thine hand. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldst not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon the str their streams, and upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon their, all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood, and the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. My imagination is active here as this dramatic scene unfolds. As Pharaoh comes out of his palace with his chariot and horsemen and bodyguards and quite a few attendants to worship, Moses and Aaron meet him there at the river. God foresaw him coming to the river. Moses and Aaron must give him a new summons to surrender. And in the case of refusal to give him notice of the judgment that would come on the river, where they were now standing. 
and the evil effects upon him and the nation and his people. Notice was given beforehand so that there would be no occasion to say that it happened by chance or to attribute it to any other cause, but that it might appear to be done by the power of the God of the Hebrews, and that he would know and understand that it was punishment upon him for his obstinacy. Moses was expressly told to take the rod with him, that Pharaoh might be alarmed at the sight of it, which had so lately triumphed over the rods of the magicians. As Moses and Aaron stand by the riverside, Aaron is instructed to stretch his rod. This was the rod that was already gaining quite a reputation. It is the rod that is going to inflict great trial and pain upon Egypt, and great comfort and freedom to the Israelites. Aaron was directed to smite all the waters of Egypt with a plague. So Aaron does so with great drama. With a broad sweeping motion, he stretches his rod over the Nile, and it turns to blood. He then stretches it toward the hills, and the rivers, streams, and tributaries turn to blood. As Moses continues to turn with his rod stretched out, he points toward the farmland, and all the ponds turn to blood. And as he turns still further, the city comes into view, and the pools and the cisterns turn to blood. All the palaces and places of luxury that the Egyptians are used to attending, like the hot springs and the spas, turn to blood. He turns again, this time toward the palace, and all the vessels of wood and stone and that are filled with water to be used for cooking and washing up and drinking turn to blood. When Aaron comes full circle and stops, all Egypt has been hit with the plague, and every source of water is has the foul and horrid smell, and it goes on for seven days. This miracle was done in the sight of Pharaoh and all his attendants, for God's judgments are always performed in public. Truth seeks no corners to hide in. It is open and visible to all. An amazing change was immediately brought upon all the waters, not only the rivers of the waters, but all the tributaries and ponds and streams and pools. All of them are turned to blood. Whether the plague was on the Israelites is not told us, but is implied that it was not, because only Egyptians are mentioned as digging wells to find water. It was a dreadful plague. This was real blood, not just some algae. And when God changed that rod into a snake... It wasn't fake like the magician snakes. It was a real, live, vicious snake. The same with this plague. It was real. And today, scientists would analyze the 
water turn to blood and try to say that it is something that is not, or explain away the phenomena as some natural thing due to global warming or climate change. The very sight of such vast rolling streams of pure blood, no doubt florid, viscous, and bright red, and it could not but strike terror to the people, and the consequences of it were about to plunge them into great distress. Imagine not being able to drink for a week. Every bit of healing, refreshing water in that dry environment is turned to blood and is undrinkable. Water is a testimony to the love and mercy of God. It is the most common natural resource aside from air. God wisely provided it, so abundant and renewable, that it is cheap and almost everywhere. We almost always take it for granted. It seems that it will always be there, and the Egyptians had depended on the Nile for hundreds of years to provide irrigation for the crops and food through fish that were so abundant. They even worshipped the fish. But Psalms 105.29 says, He turned their waters into blood, and he slew their fish. Now they were all dead. And they made all of Egypt, which was a pleasant land, to stink with an awful stench that got increasingly putrid as time wore on. The people either had to drink the blood or perish with thirst, it seemed, and caused them great inconvenience. Egypt was rendered a very unpleasant place. The people had to dig new wells to get some brackish water to drink. The Egyptians were guilty of the blood of all the male babies of the Israelites. They had stained the river with the blood of the Hebrews' children. And now God made their river, their source of life, into a source of death. Furthermore, the Egyptians persecuted the Israelites and took away their God-given religious liberty and taught them idolatry and false doctrine so that they forgot God. Thus they were guilty of lost souls, too. And he gave them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Revelation 16.6 God's people have always been the target of persecution and martyrdom for the testimony of Jesus. Their blood has been spilt in many a nation for the witness of Christ, and the Israelites were no exception. In fact, the persecution of the Jews is a type of persecution of God's people at the end of time. The Egyptians steeled their hearts against God. This is also manifested at the end-time plague, when a law will be decreed that requires the people of God to violate their consciences. The nation will have created the mark of the beast, and all who receive that mark by compliance with that law will become the enemies of God and persecute the true and faithful. 
But the spirit of persecution actually makes that nation guilty of the blood of all the saints that have died as witnesses for Jesus. Listen to this. Speaking of the Jews, Jesus said in Matthew 23:34 and 35, Wherefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that a Upon you may come all the righteous blood of shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. This is the spirit of persecution, and those that have that spirit are as guilty of all the righteous blood shed throughout all history as if they carried out those murders themselves. Pharaoh was the supreme pontiff, or the pontifex maximus, of the Egyptian religion. He was a type of the pontifex maximus of the spiritual Babylon, or the pope, to come at the end of time. The only difference was that Egypt was an example of pagan or secular persecution, and Rome and the papacy are a pagan system of spiritual deception that is cloaked in Christian garments and claims to act in the name of Christ. This plague on Egypt had more significance. The Nile was to them an idol which they worshipped and served more than the Creator. The Apostle Paul refers to this when he says the wrath of God is meted out upon the ungodly and unrighteous for their arrogance and pride and false worship. He says of the wicked in Romans 1.25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. The Nile was sacred to them, and Pharaoh went out to it each morning to worship it. It was known as the Nile God, and was identified with Amun-Ra. It was said to be self-created and was sometimes called the father of all the gods and the chief of the waters. The river was considered to have healing virtue. Even the creatures that lived in the river were considered sacred objects of worship. It was Pharaoh's duty to pay his devotion to the river daily and perform ritual worship at its banks. The plague struck at all those things that they had tried to elevate above the God of heaven. So God turned that river and his streams into blood, which they turned into a god. The true fountain of the Nile was rejected by them, so they paid their devotions and supreme homage to his streams. So God made their river turn to blood to show them where their course would take them. In his mercy he was trying to open their eyes to their folly. The river wasn't the God who brought them blessings. 
It was created by a loving, caring, living God who was very interested and involved with his creatures. He was the one who was the, its fountain. He was the one who poured out the blessings of heaven to bless men with beautiful harvests and all other necessary benefits of life. That which we idolize, God makes bitter to us or removes it from us. He scourges us with it because we make it a competitor to him. The first of the ten plagues was grievous enough that Pharaoh couldn't help but be impressed with God's power and authority over the elements. But whatever the impression was, it was short-lived, because the magicians did it also, or so they thought. God allowed this to give Pharaoh a hook on which to hang his hat of doubt and rebellion. Exodus 7, 22-24 And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither did he set his heart to this also. And all the Egyptians digged around the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the river. This plague made a huge impact. The whole nation of Egypt was very dependent on the Nile for their water supply, and the very existence of the kingdom was dependent on its yearly overflow. Egypt would not exist as a powerful nation without the Nile. The plague struck at the national security of the nation and threatened their stability and hegemony as a nation. Let's take a modern lesson from this. America wouldn't be a global superpower without its freedoms, especially its religious freedom which was a natural development of Protestantism. America's superpower status is a result of freedom and the prosperity that freedom brings. Listen to this from Great Controversy, page 441. Freedom of religious faith was granted to every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. The oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. America is as dependent on Protestantism, its republicanism, and its religious freedom as Egypt was dependent upon its Nile. As Rome becomes more and more successful in subverting and supplanting the Protestantism and Republicanism, America will lose its power and its religious freedom. This is no trifling idle or idle statement. The leaders of America, 
have been using the term democracy for a long time, trying to get Americans used to thinking of America as a democracy and get them away from thinking of it as a republic. I'm not talking here about the Republican or Democratic parties directly, for they are both corrupted. I am referring to two widely different principles of government. The Republican principles are de designed to protect the minority opinion. The first principle is religious freedom. You can't protect the minority opinion if you don't have religious freedom because the most fundamental beliefs are religious and there are as many different views or beliefs as there are trees in the forest. No two are exactly alike, though they are divided into species. Religious beliefs, especially minority ones, need protection, as demonstrated in the Middle Ages when minority religious opinions were treated as crimes by the mixing of church and state. Republicanism stresses liberty and inalienable individual rights as central values, among other principles, and guarantees that those rights cannot be repealed by a majority vote. The democratic system of government can and will become the tyranny of the majority that will trample rights and liberties of the minority opinions, very similar to the Middle Ages. Today, under the delusion that America is a democracy, we are seeing the dismantling of those rights including freedom of speech and religious liberty at an unprecedented pace. We are descending to mob rule. The principles of Republican government embedded in the Constitution represent an effort by the framers to ensure that the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will not be trampled by majorities. That's from Richard J. Ellis and Michael Nelson debating the presidency. The enemy of true freedom and righteousness is doing everything he can to remove liberty, especially religious freedom. The American administration is doing everything it can to remodel America after Rome's image. From Antifa to the LGBTQ policies to the move towards socialism, all of it is designed to take away the freedoms Americans have taken for granted. And because of the progressivism, Rome will be established as the undisputed champion of the political discourse in America. It will also take away the freedoms of God's true people. There is much confusion today among God's people about these concepts because they have not been taught. Indeed, the opposite has been taught in the public schools and universities of America. Most people don't even challenge the idea that America was founded as a democratic government. 
they just accept the lie as if it is true. This gives Rome a major advantage because her principles of the common good and the rule of the majority align perfectly with democratic principles. But Rome has been manipulating the politics of America for a long time, and quite successfully. Through many administrations, and yes, even through the Trump administration, it has worked to achieve supremacy. That's what republicanism was designed to prevent. Some administrations are more responsive than others. Rome has managed to make each party two sides of a Hegelian political debate that Rome has used to get America so divided and so discontented that it can offer solace to both sides and eventually get America to do its bidding in religious matters and enact a Sunday law. We do not advocate for one side or the other. We advocate for the kingdom of God. We look for the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom that will not be manipulated by Rome, a kingdom that is clean and doesn't deceive, a kingdom that doesn't divide. That is how we identify. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ, and that kingdom is not of this world. That is where we must place our affections and our treasures. So God will have to send judgments on the idols of today, just as he did in the days of Egypt. Rome will be brought low, and the evangelical world will be brought low with her, and the nations that have been in fornication with her will be brought low by the seven last plagues. The plague was designed to warn the Egyptians of the destruction that would come on them for fighting God. In smiting the river, they were warned of the destruction of their crops. They were warned of the destructions of their cattle. In fact, they were warned of the destruction of all the productions that these things provided resources for. The river was their life and livelihood. In smiting it, God gave them an omen of ruin if they continued their course. As I alluded to before, this plague was significant because it is a type of the seven last plagues that fall upon the world because of their rejection of truth and determined opposition and persecution of God's people just before Jesus comes and delivers his people. In Revelation 16, 3-6, we have a description of one of the seven last plagues. The same plague that came upon Egypt, only more extensive. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, thou which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. 
For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. The plague of blood at the end of time includes the sea as well as the rivers and streams. This plague strikes deeper and reaches further and more extensively than the plagues of Egypt. Listen to what Great Controversy, page 628, says about it. Says the Revelator, in describing those terrific scourges, there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. The sea became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the rivers and fountains of waters became blood. Terrible as these inflictions are, God's justice stands fully vindicated. The angel of God declares, Thou art righteous, O Lord, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. By condemning the people of God to death, they have as truly incurred the guilt of their blood as if it had been shed by their hands. In like manner, Christ declared the Jews of his time guilty of all the blood of holy men which had been shed since the days of Abel, for they possessed the same spirit and are, were seeking to do the same work with these murderers of the prophets. God's purpose was to vindicate his name and authority before the wicked and stop their boasting. Listen to this from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 263. As the Lord would give the Egyptians an opportunity to see how vain was the wisdom of their mighty men, how feeble the power of their gods when opposed to the commands of Jehovah. He would punish the people of Egypt for their idolatry and silence their boasting of the blessings received from their senseless deities. God would glorify his own name, that other nations might hear of his power and tremble at his mighty acts, and that his people might be led to turn from their idolatry and render him pure worship. More than that, he gave them an opportunity to turn from their gods to the God of heaven. From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 263, we read the following. Before the infliction of each plague, Moses was to describe its nature and effects that the king might save himself from it if he chose. Every punishment rejected would be followed by one more severe until his proud heart would be humbled and he would acknowledge the maker of heaven and earth as the true and living God. But the seven last plagues are not designed to give people an opportunity to repent, for they occur after the close of human probation. God has given mercy added to mercy, and has done all he can to convince men of his love. 
All minds have been made up. Nothing will change them. The seven last plagues are designed so that God can vindicate his name and his justice. Eventually, all will acknowledge the power and authority of God and his justice. It is important to note that God knows what he will do in wrath as well as in mercy beforehand. Isaiah 10.23 says, For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined, in the midst of the land. So every consumption or everything that affects the ways of man is thoughtfully determined beforehand. And man cannot escape the sense of God's impending wrath because all of us have a conscience if it isn't seared by rebellion. And they cannot avoid the warning of the approaching sword. God is merciful. He often lets men know of his judgments ahead of time. He warns before he wounds. For the Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's Second Peter 3.9. Exodus 7.21. The fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Think about their food source. Egypt was dependent on abundant fish from the river for food. But the fish had all died, thus threatening them with starvation. They had to survive just on what they could grow. Exodus 7.24 says, All the Egyptians digged about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. This was truly an emergency. The people would die in a few days without water. The Egyptians, seeking to find relief from the plague, dug wells and round about the river to find water to drink. They found some, but I want you to think about the amount of water that they found. It was probably small, just enough to let them survive. This shows that God's wrath is mixed with mercy, and he is full of compassion. Some of the Egyptians might still surrender to God. As they dug those wells, this was hard work, and the water was so little. But while they did this work, they could be thinking about the God that they rejected. And so maybe they would come back to him. God would not let the subjects smart too much for the obstinacy of their prince. Exodus seven twenty two and 23. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. Pharaoh endeavored to confront the miracle because he resolved not to humble himself under the plague. 
he sends for the magicians, and by God's permission, they ape the miracle with their enchantments. This serves Pharaoh an excuse not to set his heart to obey God's will, and a pitiful excuse it was. Just like when Moses visited Pharaoh the first time, and the magicians counterfeited the snake, the magicians were again consulted, and once more they counterfeited the genuine miracle by seeming to transform a certain amount of water into blood. They must have gotten the water from the wells dug to supply enough to, for the people to survive. That the magicians actually turned the water into blood is not implied in the vague expression, did so. They only needed to convince Pharaoh that they could do what Moses and Aaron had done. No critical examination was done on their pretended miracle, which in spite of being a trick was passed off as genuine. Pharaoh didn't want a careful examination. He just wanted an excuse to turn his back on God's command. Had the magicians possessed the power they claimed to have, they should have been able to turn the blood of the Nile to water again. The king was satisfied with a fake miracle, showing his stupidity. In this case, it was probably the result of his hardened heart. He believed what he wanted to believe. Does that sound familiar to the way people think today? We live in a post-truth world. People create and believe in their own reality. Many people today want to believe only that which they want to believe. Tell us lies that we may believe falsehood, they say. Just don't disturb my peace and security. And anyone who disrupts their concepts of truth, however absurd, is the enemy, and they will turn on you. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, because he was convinced that Moses and Aaron were merely magicians possessing powers slightly superior to his own musicians. The sufferings of his country, deprived of its life-giving supply of water, made little impression upon his hardened soul. Exodus 7.25 And seven days were fulfilled after that the Lord had smitten the river. The plague continued for seven days. And in all that time, Pharaoh's proud heart would not let him so much as ask Moses to intercede for him with God for the removal of the plague. The Egyptians worshipped their river, so God made that which they looked upon as their greatest benefactor a curse. Do you feel that at times you want to fight God? You don't need to, you know. Just surrender and let him transform your life before it is too late. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your lessons that we have learned today. 
Thank you, too, for your grace and power that is available to us. May we have victory over the enemy, and may we not deceive ourselves and be found fighting God. Thank you for warning us of the nearness of the end of time. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is Seekers of Your Heart, sung by Jennifer Buttery. It is recorded on a CD with other hymns called Seekers of Your Heart. If you would like to have a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will send you one. Please mention the CD, Seekers of Your Heart. Other international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month Little Nas X unofficial Satan Nikes containing human blood sell out in under a minute. Rapper and singer Little Nas X launched a controversial pair of Satan shoes featuring a bronze pentagram, an inverted cross, and a drop of real human blood, and they sold out almost immediately. The black and red sneakers, part of a collaboration between Little Nas X and New York-based art collective MS. CHF were made using Nike Air Max 97s, though the sportswear brand has distanced itself from the design. In an emailed statement to CNN, Nike said it was not involved in creating the modified sneakers. Quote, we do not have a relationship with Little Nas or MSCHF, the company said. Nike did not design or release these shoes and we do not endorse them. MSCHF confirmed via email March 29th that the limited edition drop of 666 pairs sold out in less than a minute, though Little Nas X will keep the first pair, MSCHF creative director Kevin Weisner told CNN. They were priced at $1,018 a pair, a reference to the Bible passage Luke 10:18 that reads, quote, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Each shoe's air bubble sole contains 60 cubic centimeters, 2.03 fluid ounces of red ink and one drop of human blood according to MSCHF. A MSCHF spokesperson said the blood had been provided by members of the art collective, adding, quote, We love to sacrifice for our art. Later, Weisner explained on a video call that the creative team collected individual drops over the course of a week using the same type of needle used in at-home glucose test. The group also confirmed to CNN that Nike was, quote, not involved in this in any capacity. The shoes sparked outrage online over the weekend and attracted criticism from a number of high-profile political and religious figures, including South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and evangelical pastor Mark Burns. The latter described the sneakers in a tweet as, quote, evil and heresy. Some fans of the Old Town Road rapper, meanwhile, tweeted their support and desire to own a pair. In response, Little Nas X, whose real name is Montero Lamar Hill, 
posted a video to his official YouTube account titled Little Nas X Apologizes for Satan's Shoe, which has now been viewed over 1.8 million times. But after a few seconds, the apparent apology cuts to a scene from his new music video, Montero, Call Me By Your Name, showing him dancing provocatively with the devil character. The rapper is then pictured snapping the devil's neck before removing his horned crown and assuming it himself. The day after Little Nas X released the music video, he responded to the backlash over its rebellious religious imagery. Quote, I spent my entire teenage years hating myself because of this S space space T y'all preached would happen to me because I was gay, he wrote. So I hope you are mad. Stay mad. Feel the same anger you teach us to have towards ourselves. The collective Little Nas X worked with on the, quote, Satan shoe, MSCHF, is known for its irrelevant, quote, drops, a series of tongue-in-cheek art projects unveiled once every two weeks. In 2019, the collective released limited edition, quote, Jesus Shoes, also made from Nike Air Max 97 sneakers, which featured a steel crucifix and, quote, holy water sourced from the Jordan River. Other drops have seen the collective sell a laptop installed with some of the world's most dangerous computer viruses for over $1.3 million. In February, meanwhile, the group ripped apart four Hermes Birkin bags in order to create a collection of sandals priced between $34,000 and $76,000. Quote, We all knew that some people would take the Satan element of this seriously. But I am not sure we were entirely prepared for how much of a fur it would cause, Weisner said. Obviously, from our perspective, it's just fun, right? There's a really rich wealth of symbolism to work with, but some people have been very up in arms with it. He referenced one YouTube reviewer, Michael J. Mitchell, of the account A Sneaker Life, who first did an unboxing video, then posted a follow-up video called, quote, I threw the Nike Satan shoes away. He did so, Weisner said, because his fans had reacted so poorly to the concept, which is extremely funny. In the 8-minute video, Mitchell announces he's getting rid of the sneakers before tossing them down the trash chute in his apartment building. He shows them in the box before they make their descent. Quote, I'm throwing them away, bro, straight up. I'm not keeping this energy around me whatsoever, he said. Everybody just relax, bro. I am a man of God. Quote, Many are investigating spiritualism simply from curiosity. They have no real faith in it and would start back horrified at the idea of becoming mediums. But they are venturing on forbidden and dangerous ground. When they are fast in the toils of the deceiver, they find they are in the power of him who makes the most abject slaves of his servants. And nothing can deliver them but the power of God. The only safety for us is in trusting implicitly and following faithfully the instruction of the Word of God. The Bible is the only chart that marks out the narrow path which shuns the pitfalls of destruction. This Day with God, page 247. Next, will America join Rome and Germany as a fallen republic? The United States is not a democracy, it is a republic. The Pledge of Allegiance, learned by every American child, includes the very words, quote, 
to the Republic. The Founding Fathers knew the most efficient government after breaking with the British Empire was not to be a direct democracy, but a republic. The word is of Latin origin, res publica, or, quote, the public affair. It gives the impression that the public and not the aristocracy, the royalty, or the elites have a say in politics, most commonly through representation. The problem is, republics are notoriously fickle. When asked after the Constitutional Convention of 1787 if the United States was a monarchy or a republic, Benjamin Franklin quipped, quote, a republic if you can keep it. Franklin was, among other things, a historian with full knowledge of other long-dead historical republics. Some republics last centuries without crashing, others last merely years, but all eventually fall. The United States is nearing the end of its second century, the oldest uninterrupted country with a constitution in the world, surpassing numerous ancient and medieval states that have long since collapsed. It is inevitable. We will fall. But how? Some examples of the past may very well help us explain the foreseeable downfall of the United States, or help us delay it, if only temporarily. Others can demonstrate that even if the Republic, as we know it, falls, it doesn't mean that something new or comparable can't rise to take its place. Ancient Rome, for example, had a long history as a Republic before becoming an empire. Around 509 BC, the legendary king of Rome, Lucius Tarcanius Superbus, was overthrown and the monarchy abolished. In this new Rome, two praetores, quote, leaders or councils, were to be elected by the people each year. They were to check and to balance each other, along with the Senate, which was made up of the aristocracy, and later the plebeian, lower class advising. The Roman Republic was sound for centuries until 82 BC, when the Senate appointed Lucius Cornelius Sulla as dictator, a much more legal and neutral position than what we may think today. He effectively made the Senate superior in both the number of members and in the power it held over the lower class plebeian council. Within two generations, Julius Caesar made his famous march across the Rubicon amid political and military disarray in Rome. He declared himself dictator for life, when normally a dictator was to resign after six months. He also increased the number of senators to 900, dwarfing the plebeians. Governors received term limits, and finally, Caesar had the power to personally appoint any magistrate. His rule secure, Caesar was a threat to the Republic's foundation, which led to his undoing. Quote, Beware the Idus of March. Upon his assassination in 44 BC, the Republic plunged into chaos and bitterness. Enter Gaius Octavian, adopted son of Caesar, a military veteran and general who defeated giants like Antony and Cleopatra of Egypt and Lepidus. The Senate, looking to Octavian as a strong leader, gave him the title Augustus Caesar and the position of Principus, first citizen, for life with the duties of being the military commander and leader of the councils. They effectively gave away the republic their ancestors had built for five centuries. This was 27 BC, the first year of the Roman Empire. The motif of a strong leader restoring order is not a one-off event in history. Most notorious, perhaps, is the Weimar Republic in the 1930s, which gave away whatever freedom it had to a psychotic, 
genocidal Fidelbrand politician named Adolf Hitler. Though the Weimar Republic was still officially known as the Duchess Reich, the German Reich, it had abolished its monarchy in 1919 and was headed by one incompetent coalition after another. Post-war hyperinflation was so bad that the Reichmark was more valuable as playthings for children than currency. One famous photo shows a German carrying a literal wheelbarrow full of currency just to buy bread. This republic's fall began in 1930 when the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazis, won 107 seats in the Reichstag parliament. By comparison, two years earlier the NSDAP won only 12. The 1930 election had no majority among the Nazis, the Social Democratic Party, and the Communist Party, and no coalition was formed. Chaos in an already chaotic country ensued. President Paul von Hindenburg evoked Article 48 of the Constitution, which allowed him to effectively rule temporarily with unlimited power and suspended several articles of the Constitution. Things came to a head when Hindenburg appointed Hitler as Chancellor on January 30, 1933 with several other Nazi party members designated key cabinet officials. A month later, the Reichstag fire occurred, completely torching the parliament and giving Hitler the perfect scapegoat, the Communist Party. The fact that they conveniently caught a communist was just icing on the cake. This allowed the next election in March of 1933 to be overwhelmingly in support of the NSDAP. Because of the Reichstag fire, Hitler proposed the Enabling Act, which was effectively a permanent act to Article 48 of the Constitution. Hitler and his cabinet could pass any law without the approval of the Reichstag, which required a two-thirds vote. The Social Democratic Party planned to veto the law, which would have put it under the required number. However, Hermann Göring, then the president of the Reichstag, introduced an amendment that no vote should count for those Reichstag members who were absent. It just so happened that 26 Social Democrats were not present as they were in hiding. Likewise, there were no Communists. Therefore, of 584 Reichstag members, this new rule required only 378 yeas to pass. Before Goring's amendment, it would have required 432. So with maneuvering, threats, and false promises, the Nazi party formed a coalition with the centrist center party and the Enabling Act was passed, thus beginning the 12-year Nazi reign. Every Social Democrat vetoed the act, and the leader, Otto Wells, declared that, quote, We German Social Democrats pledge ourselves solemnly in this historic hour to the principles of humanity and justice, of freedom and socialism. No Enabling Act can give you power to destroy ideas which are eternal and indestructible. The Enabling Act was legally passed 441 to 91, without a coup, manipulation, or assassination. It was all in accordance with Germany's constitution. But just because a republic falls, that does not mean it's gone forever. There are many more examples of fallen republics in history, and all boil down to the fact that republics are unstable against a centralized, autocratic, and charismatic government. Nonetheless, a fallen republic doesn't mean something new and similar can't take its place. The Commonwealth of England from 1649 to 1660 was short-lived 
but the only Republican period of English history. It fell after a short 11 years because of its strict Puritan and Calvinistic views, no Christmas, no theater, and strict Sunday observance. These did not go over well with the populace. Generals revolted, and people supported the restoration of the monarchy. And on May 8, 1660, King Charles II, son of deposed King Charles I, was crowned lawful king. The French are currently on their fifth republic legally. The first formed in 1792 after the French Revolution and fell on December 2, 1804, when Napoleon Bonaparte was voted emperor. The French Second Republic was similarly short-lived and similarly resulted in the reappointment of a monarchy in 1852. The Third Republic fell in 1940 with the invasion of Nazi Germany and the Fourth Post-war republic dissolved itself in 1958 during a colonial crisis. The Greeks are similarly on their third republic, with the first falling in 1832 and the second in 1935. Within the next century, the United States of America may very well no longer exist under its current form. It may be that Americans will eventually desire something different. Maybe they will want something more streamlined or perhaps a more parliamentary system of government like our British cousins. Hopefully, any such transitions will come peacefully. But as with every generation, the people of America may rise up, whether in the voting booth or in arms, to reestablish true American freedom that is indispensable and unalienable. That, I believe, will never change in our national spirit. But republics historically always fail. The German politician Otto von Bismarck is rumored to have once said, quote, God looks out for fools, drunks, and the United States of America. Is America special enough? America, after all, is a republic. Do you wonder why we are losing our republic? Quote, By the decree enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation will disconnect herself fully from righteousness. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, page 451. Next, the fall of Chile is a warning to America. Back in the 1970s, the nation of Chile embarked on one of the boldest sets of free market economic reforms in history. The government called in the Chicago Boys, as they were called, led by Milton Friedman and other University of Chicago free market economists. They were given a free hand to redesign the Chilean economic system with property rights, a low flat tax, privatization of the social security system, and industry deregulation. In 1991, Friedman wrote that Chile now has, quote, the three freedoms, economic freedom, political freedom, and human freedom. It will be interesting to see if they can keep it. For four decades, the experiment worked better than anyone could have imagined. According to a study by economist Axel Kaiser for the Cato Institute, quote, between 1975 and 2015, 
Her capita income in Chile quadrupled to 23,000, the highest rate in Latin America, CNP 2016. As a result, from the early 1980s to 2014, poverty fell from 45% to 8%, CNP 2016. Chile became one of the wealthiest nations in South America, and it happened in three decades, an eye blink of history. The Marxist and intellectual class of Latin America always hated the free market reforms. They disparaged the Chicago boys as, quote, fascist. They spent decades attacking the policies with the stooges in the American media echoing their protest, even as Chile became the jewel of South America. The Marxists invented a narrative of, quote, inequality, the rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poorer, and capitalism is evil. They infiltrated all of Chile's cultural institutions, the media, the schools, the universities, the Catholic Church, the arts, the unions, and even the corporate boardrooms. They spread their poisonous creed of collectivism to the populace. Is any of this sounding familiar to our situation today? Eventually, the leftists pulled off a political coup. In 2013, the left won the Chilean presidency. The free market reforms were systematically replaced with spread-the-wealth platitudes. In October 2020, voters approved a rewrite of the Constitution, and now property rights and the rule of law are in danger. Chile is now in economic freefall. The poor are getting crushed. The rich are pulling their money out of the country. They have arrived at, quote, equality. Nearly everyone is suffering. Meanwhile, back in America, we have an economic transformation of our own going on. The Biden administration promises to help the middle class by handing out trillions of dollars of free money to citizens and paying people more money for not working than working. We will borrow trillions of dollars and pray that the Chinese continue to buy our bonds and that our currency holds up. Many of our constitutional protections and congressional rules of behavior, such as the filibuster, which protects the rights of the minority, may be headed to the shredder. The election laws are getting rewritten to benefit significantly the party now in power, the Democrats. The House has passed a bill requiring millions of working class people to join unions and pay dues. The left is saying, don't worry, this compulsion is only going to help the working class. Sure. A socket to the rich tax increase is coming that will make the productive class and job creators pay their, quote, fair share with tax rates of 50%, 60%, and 70%. Will this story have a happy ending? The answer to that question might be contained in the frightening example of what happened in Chile. It is what our children and college students should be learning in the classrooms. Fat chance. The left runs our schools now too. Does anybody really understand what the end game is? The loss of economic and political freedoms will lead straight down the path to the loss of religious freedoms. That's the end game. Quote, Heretofore, those who presented the truths of the third angel's message have often been regarded as mere alarmists. Their predictions that religious intolerance would gain control in the United States, that church and state would unite to persecute those who keep the commandments of God, have been pronounced groundless and absurd. It has been confidently declared that this land could never become other than what it has been, the defender of religious freedom. But as the question of enforcing Sunday observance is widely agitated, the event so long doubted and disbelieved is seen to be approaching, and the third message will produce an effect 
which it could not have had before. Great Controversy, page 605. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.